Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. We've just witnessed a masterpiece from Rafael Nadal. Roland Garros title number 13. He defends his throne as King of Clay once again, and he equals Roger Federer, a record that he's been pursuing for so long throughout his entire career. He's finally tied with Roger Federer with 20 major titles. Congratulations to Rafa Nadal, his team, and his fan base for uh, a really great moment on Sunday for him and an unbelievable milestone. His dominance at this tournament continues to be one of the most spectacular and impressive things in all of sport. Straight set victory over Novak Djokovic for Rafael Nadal. 6-love, 6-2, 7-5. If you're new to the channel, what I do here at Monday Match Analysis is break down the most important ATP matches with a level of nuance and detail that I hope can make some sense of what happened. And that's what I'm going to do here. It's one of my four favorite days of the year, my friends. I love the Mondays after major finals. There is nothing better. I live for it. And this was this reminded me of uh, Australia 2019. Because so often, and especially we've had a lot of five-setters where we're talking about epic matches back and forth tight and this was this was just one of those days it was more of a celebration of one-sided greatness than it was an amazing tennis match but there's still a lot of things to talk about there's still a lot of interesting things that happened in this match and I'm excited to get into it I want to hit four major points on today's episode uh, one of them is just the general first we'll start with the general plot lines of the match then I want to talk about short points. Then I want to talk about drop shots. And then I will talk about conditions. So that's on the agenda, breaking down the 2020 French Open final between Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. I just want to start by saying Nadal did so many amazing things in this match and was so incredibly flawless, especially in the first two sets. And in the third set, he was borderline human, but especially in the first two sets, he did so many things. I mean, you know, masterpiece is the word that comes to mind. He really did paint a masterpiece over three sets. So from just robotic consistency on sustained aggression off of both sides, if if you are having an argument with your buddy about Nadal's backhand, 
and you're trying to say if, if someone tells you that Nadal's backhand isn't great, show them this match. It is it is underrated. It's a shot that does not get enough respect from the variation to the brute force to the consistency. This was one of the best backhand matches I've ever seen from Rafa Nadal. The forehand was firing as well. The return of serve was out of this world. The hands, the creativity, the improvisation that he showed at times, the variety, which he is uses so well on clay against Djokovic whenever they play, was on full display once again. And the movement and the court position and the shot selection, all those little details just seemed to be so calibrated today. He played miles better. I'm saying today, full disclosure, I'm recording this late Sunday night. And it will drop early Monday morning. Um, so just the, the little details. It was such it was such a complete performance from Nadal. And we will get into the the spots where Djokovic went wrong. Um, I will say this. I will say this. What I felt happened in the first two sets was Djokovic came out with a decent level and was competitive, but Nadal was so good in the early stages of those sets that when Djokovic didn't get any payoff from the level he was bringing to the court, he got frustrated or discouraged. I think discouraged is a much better word, actually, for how Djokovic felt. He got a little bit discouraged by how well Nadal was playing, and Novak actually said after the match that he was surprised with the level that Nadal brought to the court. So I think right off the bat, that happened in the first set, and then it happened again in the second set. Towards the tail end of the first and the second, I thought that Novak's level was was a lot lower than he'd like it to be. But I, but I think the cause of that, I really do believe the cause of that was because when Djokovic was fully engaged and and motivated and locked in at the beginning of the first and second set, he wasn't getting any payoff from it. I would like to highlight the very beginning of the match. It was a really difficult way to start the match for Novak because first he he's serving, he has a 40-15 lead, he makes an error on a backhand drop shot, Nadal hits a wonderful backhand angle cross-court winner. But then from Deuce, that's this is where he's going to be very disappointed. Djokovic starts the match, his opening service game, has an overhead at Deuce, which Nadal neutralizes and then hits a big forehand down the line to force an error. That was kind of a deep overhead, difficult to finish. But then on add-out, break point, he has another overhead. And once again, Nadal neutralizes it. And then Djokovic misses a backhand down the line, just wide. Missed it by a tad. To have an overhead, first to be up 40-15, and then to have an overhead on the last two points from Deuce and to not win either of them has to be just a very deflating way to start the match. And then at the one love game with Nadal serving, and keep in mind Rafa's playing unbelievable in this game, Novak does get it to Deuce. And if you look at the, the highlights, and this will bring me to my next point. If you look if you look at the highlights, you can see Novak is doing some really good things and he is getting the better of some of the exchanges, but he's not putting it together. He's not winning the the big points and Nadal just uh winning all of the short points as I'll get to. So 
the points that you'll see on the highlight reel, so to speak, Novak was having a decent amount of success with. The points that you won't see on the highlights, Novak wasn't winning. More on that in a moment. But when Djokovic gets to deuce at one love, he goes for a, a questionable backhand drop shot, hits the, the bottom of the net. And then he hits a backhand long rally here, hits a backhand just long, just beyond the baseline by an inch or two. So he's in these early games. It's just a, it's a tough way to start. And then in the second set, and then Nadal, by the way, just, uh, this, this is a given. It's a bagel set. Now, you'll notice that almost all of these games were actually close, which is just kind of funny. It was one of the closer six-love sets you'll see, but it was six-love nonetheless, and joke. Uh, and, and Nadal was just, again, it's, it's difficult sometimes, and I'm going to pinpoint errors, but he was better in every way. Uh, one thing to point out in this first set is Djokovic's first serve percentage was in the dumps, and Nadal was serving better. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm, I keep getting tempted to talk about these things that I'm not ready to talk about yet. In the second set, Djokovic finds his serve, serves really well in this first game and gets a couple of service winners and some serve plus one. And every point he wins in this first game of the second set, Djokovic dictates. Then Novak has an opening at love one. He could go up a break at the beginning of the second set. Again, I'm just trying to explain I, I believe that Djokovic was better at the beginning of the sets and then faded because he was discouraged by Nadal's play. Uh, Djokovic misses a second serve return at 1530 at Love One. I thought it was one of the most costly misses of the match for Novak. And then uh, really big hitting on a cross-court rally and Nadal with a big heavy forehand uh, forces an error by Djokovic on the backhand that he hit wide. And then Nadal gets a service winner at 40-30. Rafa served beautifully in the first two sets. Beautifully. And then Nadal gets the break at one all. Again, a close game. It is it is deuce. Djokovic hits another drop shot. Nadal gets to it. Knifes an angle slice cross court for a winner. And then Djokovic hits a forehand unforced error. Three forehand unforced errors at this one all game. So then Nadal up a break. I really think Djokovic just gets discouraged. He feels like, okay, I'm playing all right, but he's playing so well. When is he going to stop playing this well? When is it going to stop? And it it really didn't. It, he never relented until the middle stages of the third set when he had a little blip, like a couple games, maybe 15 minutes in this entire match where Nadal wasn't playing incredible and making no errors, just just never, basically never missing. I think eight unforced errors through two sets for Nadal. Insane. Okay, I want to get to the next topic, which is short points. This this is important. Oh, I guess maybe I should finish the plot line of the third set. Yeah, let me let me just finish that. Um, Djokovic starts to get some errors out of Nadal, and Nadal misses more serves. So it was more... It was both, but I actually think the biggest factor in Djokovic getting in this third set was Nadal came back down to earth. That's that's my opinion. I thought Djokovic kind of did more of the same and was was playing all right, but I thought Nadal came back to earth, and he got the break at 3-2, finally... Um, he pl he plays a he plays a really good game here and and Nadal um, 
Djokovic takes control off a second serve return on break point, hits a nice backhand down the line, wins the point, um, and then they are on serve. And at this point, things settle down, and Nadal kind of is... I, I think Djokovic actually plays some really good service games from 3-all. But Nadal always knew, based on the way the points were, that he was playing with a much higher margin and he was playing a more sustainable style. And you kind of got the feeling that a loose game was going to come eventually for Djokovic. And Nadal just, he he refocused, he found his serve again, he, he reached the level that he was at earlier in the match, and at 5-all... Djokovic is up 30-15, hits a backhand unforced error, a forehand unforced error, a double fault. Nadal gets the break, up 6-5, another error-filled game from Novak. Nadal barely has to has to play a point here because uh, he hits a service winner, does Nadal at 15-love, and then he closes it off with an ace to win the match. Fourth ace of the match for Nadal, Djokovic only had one, which is a really good segue to what I want to talk about. I said before the match that whoever wins more short points, zero through four shots, was going to win this match. And that was what I thought would decide the match. And that was what I thought. I'm like, hmm, that's generally something that Novak has won against Nadal. Generally. Now, the question is on clay, does all of that change? And the reason why that's somewhat difficult to say is, one, this is different conditions than we've seen on clay. But two, we hadn't seen them at Roland Garros since... 2015, 2014, um, 2015 was a, you know, was the Novak win and 2014 was a Rafa win. It had been a while. Anyway, I wasn't sure how that was going to go. But one thing that I completely assumed, I just threw it out there. I said, this is a given. I said, Novak will serve better. And assuming Novak was going to serve better, assuming that, like it was a fact, I still thought Nadal might win more short points because he's got a better first forehand and he's got a great return on clay. So I thought for those two things, Novak could actually serve better and still uh, Nadal could get the better of the short exchanges. Guess what happened? Nadal served better. So you knew if that was going to happen, there was no way Novak was going to be able to win the the short points. And it was really lopsided. In the first set, zero through four. Well, first of all, whole in the entire match, it was 53 to 25 in favor of Nadal. And by far, if you look at zero through four, five through eight, and then nine plus, by far the real deficit here was zero through four. In fact, Djokovic won more points, uh, five through eight. Anyway, in the first set, it was 15-3 Nadal. Djokovic was 42% on first serve. So when I saw that stat at first, and Novak barely won his first serve points even when he did make it in play, when I saw that stat, I assumed, okay, look, Nadal served great in the first set. Djokovic served a low percentage. That's why that stat is so lopsided. Here's, here's what happened. Djokovic's first serve percentage in the second and third set, he was above 70%. Both sets, he started making the first serves. It still didn't matter. It still didn't matter. 
if I were to pinpoint one thing that really made Nadal win the short points, it was the dominance of Rafa's return of serve. You can just look at the in-play stats. Obviously, there's more to it, but Nadal, Nadal put 61 of 65 of Djokovic's first serves in play. That's 94%. He did not miss a second serve return. 29 for 29. That is overall 95.7% of returns in play. Are you kidding me with that? You have got to be joking me with how good that is. And it does make you wonder, and I've thought about this before, so it's not like I'm completely overreacting to one match. I don't want to do that. But the reality of clay court and slow court tennis is the slower the court gets, the more the return of serve begins to resemble a regular ground stroke. But we do this thing is we we use a blanket statement and we say Novak Djokovic is the greatest returner in the world or of all time, defensively of all time. We say that all the time. I believe it to be true. I, I'm not going back on that or anything. But if you really, let's say this, it might be worth throwing in a qualifier and saying that Nadal might be a better returner on clay court. Now, it's less like a return of serve. It's more like, like a regular ground stroke. I still am comfortable calling Djokovic the, greatest, the, the best returner in the game. But this performance was just a reminder that on clay, no longer is Nadal, no longer is the Djokovic return incomparable to the Nadal return. And it is conceivable that the Nadal return is better than Djokovic's return on clay. Very conceivable. Second serve return? almost definitely better than Nadal's second serve return on clay. Uh, but, I mean, the return was just, it was just outstanding. On Novak Djokovic's serve, I'm about to tell you a stat that should never happen. It should never happen. On Djokovic's serve, Nadal won 24, and Djokovic won 19 points, zero through four shots. Nadal actually won the category on return. That is also just insane. Okay, so that's a complete anomaly. And part of that was also that, you know, Nadal was obviously getting his plus one as well. Nadal was serving well, with the exception, one of the nitpicks in this match, I literally have two for Nadal. If you if you must know the two things that Nadal, I feel almost silly saying this. The two nitpicks for Nadal is there was a portion of the third set where he stopped making first serves. Uh, and that's when Djokovic kind of broke and got momentum. And there were also some some volleys that I think that he would normally make that he missed. So those are the two nitpicks. Outside of that, though, yes, the, the serve plus one was firing on the forehand and also in some big points on the backhand. And the return of serve. And Djokovic, um, you know, he didn't help his cause in the first set, but he, he just, the, the serve did not do any damage. So Nadal dominated the short points. That was a big factor. That was a big factor. The next thing I want to talk about are drop shots. The simplest point I can make about this is the following. I thought Novak executed his drop shots pretty well today. I know that 
I know that that might make some people roll their eyes or or something that people are have a impulse to disagree with right away because Djokovic didn't win enough points on the drop shot for it to really be effective. And by the end of the match, Djokovic actually stopped hitting the drop shot. His last drop shot, I do have this marked down in my notes. Uh, his last drop shot was at 4-all, 15-love, and Nadal got up to it and, and hit a winner. So he actually abandoned that shot. Uh, but until then, Novak was hitting a ton of them, and we knew it was going to be a big factor with the slow conditions. You got to find ways to make offense, and Djokovic hit a ton of them. He didn't execute them that badly, folks. He didn't. Here was the difference. When Rafa Nadal got there, when it wasn't a winner, um, he was 10 times more skilled and, you know, just more clever in every other way and showed off his superior skills when he got to his drop shots. There were plays that Nadal was making that Karen Hatchinov won't make, that Pablo Carreno Busta won't make, and that Stefano Tsitsipas won't make. Nadal was just simply handling the drop shots better. When you hit a drop shot, your goal is one of two things. Let me be very clear here. Your goal is one of two things. You either want to hit an outright winner, or you want to get the ball to dip below the level of the net. And even if your opponent gets to the drop shot, if they're hitting it below the level of the net, you're forcing them to hit up on the ball. And that is a victory for the drop shotter. They they love that because that's a very difficult position. You are running up and you have to hit up on the ball and you're at the net. So you're vulnerable. If you don't hit a good shot, you're going to get passed or you're, you're going to get lobbed. And Djokovic... And any any smart player will often follow up their drop shot to the net so they could put away the volley easily. You don't have much time to react. The screenshot I'm showing you right now on YouTube was a lot of what Nadal was dealing with against the Djokovic drop shot. Djokovic likes this screenshot. The pause I have with Nadal sliding forward and Nadal on his backhand digging the ball way below the level of the net. Djokovic just beyond the service line ready for it. Djokovic thinks he's going to win the point here. If I showed him this picture, he'd say, yeah, I love this. This is great. I'm, I'm cool. I have the lob. I could put away the volley. But Nadal just was doing great things. That, that's a short angle uh, pass at 1-3. Nadal gets the break in this game. That, that was also a great point, by the way, where Djokovic defended an overhead and then hit the drop shot later. Just look at the things Nadal was doing when he got up to the drop shot. Look at the shots he was pulling off. Most of Djokovic's opponents can't, they can't do it. Nadal was a different beast, plain and simple. That was the number one factor with Novak's drop shot effectiveness. He missed some. I don't think he missed a crazy amount. I thought he made a lot. I thought that he, there weren't a lot where the shot selection was awful, but Nadal was, uh, was just handling them exceptionally well, plain and simple. Here's the second factor, court position. Nadal was ready for the drop shot. He was very ready for the drop shot. And maybe this was not only about defending against the dropper, covering the dropper, but also about the slower conditions. But Nadal was playing further up in the court than usual. He was getting up on the baseline. Watch Nadal return serve in this match. He hit the return and he got up. Immediately took, took the baseline. His court position was incredibly aggressive and he made a clear 
concerted effort to be on top of the baseline more so than usual when playing Novak. So he was simply simply in a better position to retrieve the drop shots. And Pablo Carreno Busta did the same thing. Maybe Nadal took a page out of uh, out of his friend's book there and just made sure to hug the baseline. Let me be very clear. There were some shots that Nadal was unable to defend because of his court position. Because he was, ooh, sorry. Because he was pressed up against the baseline, Nadal wasn't able to defend. But every tactic has pros, cons. Every tactic has trade-offs. And that was a very smart trade-off from Nadal. Forcing Djokovic to sometimes sacrifice and give Djokovic the ability to hit it through the court, but not giving him the drop shot. And making it easier to attack short balls when you're up on the court and taking time away. So that was also a big key to why Nadal was great against the Djokovic drop shot. And that was very important in this match. Um, another thing is... Another thing is the, the Nadal execution on the drop shot was excellent. And I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't um, point that out. All right. Conditions. Let's talk about conditions. A couple things. The first thing I'll say is... I'll, I'll go in order of importance. More than anything, the condition... First of all, this was a misread by... I, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I'm just going to say what I've already said, and I'm just going to say it after the match when it, it proved to be... It proved to be correct, um, and I don't feel bad about it because I said it before the match. Everyone was talking about the height of the bounce. Everyone. What about the speed of the court? What about the fact that Nadal's tools are better equipped to play on a slow court than Djokovic? And as Djokovic's career has progressed, he has perhaps lost a bit of power. That is a little bit a, a little bit more of a statement that that per, perhaps isn't correct, but I think it's very possible. Here's what I am confident on. Djokovic has lost some physicality. He used to be a more physical player. So as that has happened, he has become um, more and more well-suited for quicker courts. And I believe his results have become more and more favorable on quicker courts. Is the low bounce bad for Nadal? Absolutely. Is it good for Djokovic? Absolutely. But people just ignored the court speed for some reason. And they just talked about the bounce. But there's multiple factors here. This is a multifaceted thing. And plain and simple, Nadal can do certain things on this court, on a court this low, that Djokovic cannot. Take the serve plus one that I'm about to put up on the screen on YouTube, for example. This is, jo this is Nadal on the back foot. This is a good kind of neutral return from Djokovic. And Nadal's forehand is just big enough that he can still do damage. And he hits this forehand big and Djokovic defends. And then Nadal hits a forehand from, the, from his backhand side in the doubles alley and hits a brilliant inside-out angle forehand winner. These are the things Djokovic can't even touch this, can't even go for it. It's such a big, nasty forehand. 
These are the things that are within Nadal's regular game that he can put to use. And Djokovic just doesn't quite have the power there. And he went for the power. And that this is the most important point I can make about Djokovic's level. I know I've made a lot of points about Nadal's level from his court position to his return to his drop shot retrieval to his backhand. Here's the best point that I have for you about Djokovic's level. Because of the conditions more than anything, also because of Nadal's defense. Nadal was moving incredibly well. Because of the conditions combined with Nadal's movement and his defense, Djokovic was reaching for extra. I cannot emphasize this enough. He was going for the extra 10% on all of his shots. He was hitting his shots flatter. He was hitting his shots bigger. You cannot do that without the trade-off. It's what I just said about Nadal's court position and how it allowed Djokovic to force some errors and to hit some extra winners because he sacrificed some defense at times. It's the same thing with Djokovic trying to hit every ball flatter and harder. Watch the end of the third set especially, or just the entire third set, when Djokovic decides, look, I am a little bit frustrated. The drop shot isn't working. I am just going to try to hit big here. And on some occasions, especially because his serve was working well for a lot of the time in that third set, on some occasions it was working and he was looking great. And it was like, wow, huge forehand by Djokovic, huge backhand by Djokovic. He's just going to make more errors because he wasn't playing within himself. Throughout the third set, which was the close set, Nadal's game had way more margin. It was so clear that Nadal was playing within himself high margin, and Djokovic was just really reaching for extra offense, extra power, going beyond his comfort zone. And when you go beyond your comfort zone in this department, you 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 are going to make errors. And that's what happened at five all. From up 30-15, missed a forehand, missed a backhand, unforced errors, just flat. You know, going for a lot and then the double fault to end it. Um, I think Nadal knew that Djokovic was going to have a game like that. I I kind of sensed it at that point because there wasn't any margin in Djokovic's game. He could have stole a set that way. Even if he stole the third set, it, it didn't look like he, he had consistently what he would have needed to have. So conditions were more a factor when it comes to um, when it comes to court speed than it was height of bounce. By the way, height of bounce, it's not as if Nadal never got it above Djokovic's shoulders. I also screenshotted this. This is a big second serve return at Love 2, 30-40. I mean, you got to understand here, this lands in the service box, heavy topspin on the second serve return by Nadal. This is above Djokovic's shoulders here. And Djokovic misses this backhand. Double break. First change of ends. Well, not first change of ends, but first sit down. And Djokovic has already had his serve broken twice here in the first set. And like this backhand is an example. It's above Djokovic's shoulders. It's out of his strike zone. Nadal still did the same things that he always does to Djokovic on a clay court with the high, heavy, looping backhands down the line. And occasionally the same thing with the forehand cross court. And then the short slice, the short backhand slice down the line for Nadal, which drew numerous errors. 
from Djokovic. He still did all of those things that he does with variety and height of bounce that he does on a high bouncing clay court. He still did all of those things, even on this lower bouncing clay court with the roof closed. That is just about um, all I have. I think I've exhausted the points that I wanted to make. I will end it here with this was this was quite fitting, I think. Um, well, for, okay, I, I just thought of one, I guess one other thing. I don't know. Uh, I know some people might comment was uh, did Djokovic look sapped of energy? because he played the four-setter and the five-setter against Tsitsipas? Uh, it's hard to say. I don't really know. I don't know the answer to that question. I know that Nadal's play certainly didn't do Djokovic's energy levels any favor. You saw when he got that jolt of energy in the third set, it was because he had a little bit of success. And that's what a little bit of success will do. It'll pump you up. But when when you don't have any success, it's really hard to play with energy. It just, it just is. So I don't know if that played a factor or not. Here's what I was going to say to close this out. With everything so different from the new balls to the cold temperature to the nighttime tennis under the lights to the roof to the, you know, October start date to the 1000 fans, it was poetic seeing something that we are used to seeing. The only thing that was the same, the only thing that was recognizable about this year's Roland Garros was Rafa Nadal lifted the trophy at the end for the 13th time. So again, I will um, end it with a congratulations, and I thank everyone for following my coverage throughout the tournament. It's been a really fun one. I've, re I've really enjoyed this tournament, and uh, I just really appreciate all of the support and the positive comments. I, I do read them all. The negative comments, thank you for those as well. And um, I've had a blast with this Steve Flink interview is coming it is set up and i will do a mailbag on friday so you know let's give this some time digest it let it simmer and then have your questions ready for friday and then we roll on with the end of the end of the season although the majors are behind us but a lot of exciting stuff i'm sure is to come remember monday match available monday match analysis is available on all podcast platforms. It's a big appreciation if you subscribe on those platforms and leave a rating and review on um, iTunes. It's a big appreciation. The end of the video, I'm not speaking good English anymore, but I can say this. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.